Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Speaking of enlarging one's mind, we turn this evening to Romans chapter 9 and 10. I am uh, taking a larger section of scripture in order that we might be able to have both sides of an important matter set before us. The sovereignty of God's grace so thoroughly laid out in chapter 9, the uh, responsibility of man in chapter 10, including the uh, call to missions. So um, these things are together, they are taught together, they are held together in the Bible. Uh, I will be back, by the way, in the book of Revelation. I'm going to do some more study, but I did uh, need to have something else to preach tonight, and I got a question this week, and so I thought I might be able to help answer that, because if one has it, then many have the same question as well. Um, How do we understand these things? Let's uh, read together Romans chapters 9 and 10. Reading now the New King James, Romans 9, verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish myself accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but, quote, in Isaac your seed shall be called, end quote. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it's written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who's resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you? To reply against God, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay 
from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the very place it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. Elijah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts, had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they didn't seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at this stumbling stone, as it's written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes For Moses writes about the righteousness that's of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is over all and rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring, who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, who has believed our report? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? 
For Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who didn't seek me. I was made manifest to those who didn't ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Well, let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, the Apostle Peter once wrote truly that there are some things in Paul's writings that are difficult to understand. Surely we are in the midst of such things, but as you have appointed these, both for our good and for your glory, we pray that you would make it so. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Uh, Here in this remarkable passage, we are taught of God's sovereignty in the salvation of his creatures, speaking very clearly of an appointment uh, of salvation, which is usually called election, as well as an appointment of disobedience of a sort in theology called reprobation, deep subjects that will require today the deepest humility and reverence of the word of God. And we might ask a a few questions. Why why are things this way? Um, Why couldn't God create creatures without sin? And when he did create creatures, why could God not keep his creatures from sinning? Can God not keep creatures from sinning? Oh, absolutely, yes. In a very short time, you and I will be with the Lord forever, and we will be forever preserved, holy, and kept from sin. Well, if God can keep his creatures from sinning, why didn't he? Why did he make angels that would soon rebel against him and who would soon be punished in the everlasting fire, prepared beforehand for them and his angels? Why did he make man who would fall? And if he could save more men, why wouldn't he do so? We read earlier at the beginning of our service about a town of Galilee that had seen such great miracles. Bethsaida, if the mighty works that I did in you were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Why would the Lord do miracles in one place where people do not repent and not do miracles in another place where people would have repented? Why doesn't God show miracles more if such miracles, he says himself, would save people? Capernaum, if the mighty works that were done in you were done in Sodom, they would have remained to this very day. But it's going to be better in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Well, why wouldn't God have saved Sodom if he could? All these questions that I'm beginning with have two things in common. First, they all have the creature saying to the creator, why did you make me like this? I demand that you give an answer why we are in this state. Second, all these questions, in effect, seek to blame the righteous God for the sin of unrighteous man. And that also was not wise. Solomon said, God has made man upright, 
But they've sought out many schemes. Uh, theoretically, I suppose, God could have prevented all sin, and he does, in fact, prevent even now a great deal of sin, and he will soon bring sin to an end and a judgment to sinners. But God does not make man sin. He doesn't even tempt man to sin. Any hardening that he does does not even involve God tempting man. As a matter of fact, it says at the end of our passage, all day long he holds out his hands to a disobedient and obstinate people that is pleading to them, why will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that he turn, turn, O Israel, turn and live. So, here we are in deep depths. And I want to give you a quote before we look at the passage before us. Tell me what you think. God desires nothing more earnestly than that those who were perishing and rushing to destruction should return to the way of safety. And for this reason, not only is the gospel spread abroad in the world, but God wished to bear witness through all ages how inclined he is to pity. Well said, John Calvin. God desires nothing more earnestly than that those who are perishing and rushing to destruction should return to the way of safety. And for this reason... Not only is the gospel spread abroad in the world, but God wanted to bear witness throughout all ages how inclined, how ready he is to pity. Well, if you are surprised by the author of that quote, then perhaps I can help to resolve some difficult questions that are also in your mind. Considering together this evening chapters 9 and 10 to gain some perspective on these twin doctrines of sovereignty and responsibility of God and man, and how these things work out, and how we are therefore to live. That'll be my small goal this evening. Well, I began reading in chapter 9, where the apostle teaches us that some people are predestined to salvation and others are not. As I said, the degree that some will be saved, despite their sin, is called election. Before the boys had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, it was said, the older will serve the younger. The decree that others will be condemned for their sin, like Pharaoh and others, is called in theology reprobation, which uh, Calvin famously called the horrible decree. The, the reformer meant that, like hell itself, it's a terrible thing even to consider and think about that some people rather will be condemned for their sin. Of course, all mankind is in sin and rebellion against God, and he covered that very thoroughly in the first three chapters of the book. Everyone knows the way of doing right, and everyone who does right will be justified on that day. But he comes to the conclusion there is no one righteous, no, not one. So this is the tragedy of our fallen state. And God does not have to do anything. He doesn't have to elect anybody. But when God chooses to give new birth to a sinner, he works to call us to himself. Um, and this contrasts with reprobation. God does not put or create sin in people. But in an election, God powerfully acts to change a heart, to take a, take a sinner and make him a saint. I will, what do we read this morning? 
put a new heart within you. Uh, I'm going to uh, put a new spirit within you. I'm going to write these things on your mind. So in the Bible, election is an active work and reprobation is a passive work. Am I losing you already? Uh, Let's take a look real quickly at chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, and I'll see if I can't make it plain. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath, uh, and this, this next phrase is in the passive voice, prepared for destruction. The vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Well, that's just an interesting turn of phrase, perhaps. The, those prepared for destruction, he speaks in a passive way. Those whom he prepared for glory, he describes in an active way. The scripture does this all the time. Have you ever noticed this? Uh, the, the, the scripture uh, speaks about God's active predestinating of people to be his children and emphasizes that uh, God uh, leaves other to their doom. He indeed uh, has them all in his hand as well. He has purposes for them. The sinful Pharaoh uh, is uh, raised up to demonstrate the power of his justice in so many ways, his righteousness in the sight of the nations. And yet, um, in so many ways, the, uh, the, the tense of the verb is telling the tale. So election and reprobation, these decrees happen before the twins were born. They were prepared beforehand, that is, before the foundation of the world, based on God's plan to descri- describe his glory. And yet, they are not exactly equal. Uh, election is the rescuing of a person from their just deserts, and reprobation is not doing that, uh, which is confirming someone else in their works. Election is saving and active. Reprobation is damning and passive. The Bible does teach that God is sovereign over salvation, and so that God is forming, if you like, uh, every soul for its destiny, but that God is in no way the author of sin He doesn't tempt man to sin, and that even, as I say, the hardening that he does, he is allowing sinful men to express their sin in a certain way that will also serve his purposes. All right, I'm already in deep waters, and I realize I'm already losing many of you. Let me see if I can pull us back in. Let me reel reel it in a little bit here. Now, my point to you is this, having seen this, in chapter 9... We are taught God's sovereignty of election and reprobation. Followed by chapter 10, where he teaches human responsibility, the necessity of preachers to preach the gospel, and the necessity of people to believe it and to call upon the name of the Lord, as the Lord himself, as it were, holds out his hands, pleading with people. In chapter 9, God is shown to be the potter, doing with the clay as he pleases, as is the right of the potter to do, giving some men to judgment as vessels made for destruction and others as uh, having mercy as vessels destined for glory. In chapter 10, God is represented as pleading with men to be saved, laboring long with them. And uh, 
answering all who would call. All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people, 21. Yet so many have refused to believe. Can you hold these things together? In chapter 9, a great part of Israel didn't believe. Why? Because of God's purpose in election. Exactly what he says. In order that God's purpose in election might stand. In chapter 10, another illustration is given. Another explanation, rather, is given. Israel's judgment is due to her obstinate unbelief and clinging to a false and indeed foolish hope of legalism, refusing God's righteousness in Christ. In what might seem at first glance to be striking indifference to what Paul just said in chapter 9, we have the other side of the story in chapter 10, the perfect balance, as always, of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Sovereignty before the foundation of the world, human responsibility in time and space. You know, these things are hard to hold together, and if, if I'm uh, confusing you, I, I assure you it's, uh, it's something that the greatest of theologians have, have worked on and said in, you know, in so many ways, I, I don't see how these things are actually connected, but surely they are. And again and again, they are put forward. And I've given you the illustration how in the balcony of Charles Spurgeon's church, there was this rope where the man would go up and ring the bell, ding dong, ding dong, and you pull one rope, the other one goes up, you pull this rope, that one goes up. Uh, and the kids wondered what kind of mechanism it was up there so that, uh, you know, when you pull one rope, another rope goes down. They were speculating on this and that. <laughs> the sexton took him up and he said, look, it's just one rope. Okay, you, you pull this side, that one comes down, right? So there's no mechanism. It's, it's just one continuous piece. Well, you know, in so many ways, uh, these doctrines are like that. They, they surely meet above. You pull one, the other one comes down. Somehow the, these things are two sides of the whole, and, and yet the mechanism is very unclear. And as a matter of fact, as Paul himself finishes this glorious section in Romans 11, as he finishes it, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. His ways past finding out. This is not explainable. Um, I, I just want you to see the biblical balance. Light in various experiments is shown time and time again to be both a particle and a wave. Though God certainly hasn't told us how these things work, but it always works. And so God is sovereign and man makes real and responsible choices for, by which he is saved or for which he is condemned. And therefore, we are to give glory to God for our salvation and know that if every man, any man who refuses to believe has no one but himself to blame. Well, a preacher that is absolutely faithful to the scriptures must summon men to faith in Christ laying upon them the responsibility to believe, warning them that their choice in this matter will determine their eternal destiny. And that same preacher must tell the convert to rejoice that the Lord has opened the blind eyes and brought him or her from death to life, taken out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh in order that, that you might be here today. Spurgeon again was asked once how we could reconcile these apparent contradictions between these truths. I see, he says, I don't have to reconcile friends. 
divine sovereignty and human responsibility have never had a falling out. They're, they're, again and again, they're just joined together in the Bible. I do not need to reconcile what God has joined together, he said. Well, the juxtaposition of these two truths, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, continue to perplex the philosophers, but they do fit very snugly in the heart, as Dr. K used to say. Um, So in chapter 9, God elects that he will only preserve a remnant of sinful Israel. It's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs. It's of God who shows mercy, verse 16. In chapter 10, quite another explanation. They sought to establish their own righteousness and have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God, or verse 16, more pointedly, they didn't obey the gospel. The blame is laid very squarely upon their unbelief and disobedience. The free offer of the gospel is likewise put forward. Whoever believes on him will not be ashamed. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And further, the necessity of missions. How shall they believe him of whom they've not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Twin doctrines, God's sovereign grace, God's free offer of the gospel. You can see it, I hope. Side by side, Romans 9, emphasizing God's sovereignty. Romans 10, human responsibility. I I might pause and ask you, budding theologians, which is the Calvinist chapter of the two? Somebody? All right. Uh, Both are, how long have I been your teacher? Both are, and you will never make any progress until you read that, until you understand that what Calvin was teaching and seeking to to teach us is, is that these things are together, and they need to be held together, the mystery preserved where there is mystery, uh, but that, that, that we cannot take one side of the equation out. Uh, the uh, um, student uh, of him, of his, James Arminius, Jacob Arminius, he said, nope, it's got to be one or the other. And uh, because the, of the emphasis of our choice, there can't be any corresponding sovereignty. Well, this goes way back before Calvin, of course, way back to the 5th century, I suppose, where there was the first big blow-up as Pelagius considered these doctrines and says, they can't both be true. If God invites us, if God commands us to come, it must be all up to us. There can be no predestination or election except what God maybe foresees in us, but it's completely up to us. Augustine said, nope, both are true. As a matter of fact, grace has the sovereignty, grace has the primacy somehow, and, and yet, as soon as you set one against the other, you become unorthodox. They had to call the Council of Orange to settle this, and they settled it quite beautifully, I think, for a while, and yet it reared its head and again, again and again in the church. Um, one of you uh, pulled out one of Top Lady's hymns, uh, Top Lady and Wesley, back and forth on this. W- one school says, no, these doctrines are both there, they're both compatible somehow. The other school saying, nope. It's one or the other, and it's got to be up to us. Well, maybe we should look at a few passages, uh, and uh, I'll show you more of what I mean. If you have a Bible, maybe you can turn with me to a few of these. Let's go. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Not going to go to too many. Let's just, let's just have a couple this evening. Acts 13, 48. Now, when the Gentiles heard this... It says, the, the gospel, I've sent you as a light to the Gentiles for salvation to the ends of the earth. 
When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. How many people believed? As many as had been appointed to eternal life. They heard it. They believed it. Okay. One, two, three, four verses later. Chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and they so spoke, uh, NIV, they spoke so effectively that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. Do you believe these both? You can't say it doesn't matter how you present the gospel. If they're elect, they'll believe. Oh, no, no. You have canceled out half of the equation. You are canceling out human responsibility. People won't believe unless you tell them, sir, unless you tell them, ma'am. You must persuade them. And they were so persuasive in Iconium. They spoke so effectively, a large number of people believed. Even though, what, four verses earlier, uh, as many as been, been appointed to eternal life believed. You, you can't say that it's all up to us without canceling out God's sovereignty. And indeed, Romans 10, verse 1, this is why Paul prays as he does. His heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they may may be saved because God will be pleased not only to bless your words, but to answer your prayers. God gives the harvest, but a farmer has to plant and water and reap, and there's no contradiction. It's 100% God and 100% man, as dear Dr. K used to say. And God says, nobody will believe unless they hear, you get going. I have to look at one more passage. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 37. John chapter 6, verse 37. Uh, back to verse 36 for a second. Uh, I've said, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Strong statement of sovereignty. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Strong statement of responsibility. You come, I'll receive you. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, all the people, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. That's, that's the Father's will, his sovereign grace in salvation. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Uh, so trying it again here, looking, looking at verses 39 and 40, uh, which is the Calvinist verse? It's both, Exactly. Uh, the Arminian will say, no, it's got to be, it's got to be verse 40. No, hyper-Calvinist says, it's got to be verse 39. Uh, the sovereignty of grace works very nicely with the responsibility of man. And in one and the same breath, our Lord presents the great, mighty, sovereign who saves to the uttermost all those whom he had given to his Son. And we are presented by this one who says, come to me and you will have salvation, whoever. Anyone who sees and believes may have eternal life. 
Let us not invent a problem where there is none biblically or logically. You might say, how does it work? I can't tell you. You may say, is it biblical? It's biblical. Uh, I've given lots of illustrations before, but uh, this is my favorite, also from Dr. K, like the fourth time he's come up in my sermon today. Uh, yeah, this is the word of God. Well, is it only the word of God? You say, what kind of liberal are you, David? Uh, of course it's the word of God uh, and only the word of God. I mean, isn't it also a human word? Didn't Paul have to sit down and write the letter to the Romans in the fullness of his learning and his longings, uh, his desires, going into every word on the page? Uh, of course, it's Paul's letter to the Romans. Okay, so what we have is 100% God and 100% man. 100% God has primacy somehow. 100% man is going into it. And as soon as you start to take out either side of the equation... You become unorthodox. Maybe if you're a liberal, you say, well, you know, maybe it's like 50% God and 50% man, right? Or if you're a little more liberal, maybe it's 30% God and 70% man. But the equation is always wrong to begin with because biblical arithmetic, biblical orthodoxy is 100% God and 100% man, and it's across the board. In our praying, uh, we pray Abba Father, but by the Spirit, the, the Spirit prays Abba Father, one cry. Uh, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who's at work within us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Across the board, we are called to bow before these things, not to seek to destroy one side of this equation, but to hold it together. And somebody then will a- a- give me this objection. Why does this even matter? How is this even practical? Well, you tell me something more practical than the reality that God is on his throne and has all his creatures in his hand and that the good and perfect will he has destined in the, in the earth will be accomplished even through the means of the wrath of wicked men like Pharaoh so that no matter what happens in this world, our eternal lives are safe and secure in the hands of a gracious God who has destined us to be his beloved children before the world was. How much more we need to hear this in a man-centered culture and how wonderful it has been for God's children to learn as they read this word that their salvation has been all this time God's gift in his loving hands to the glory of his grace. This humbles us and exalts God. It makes us realize that God is the source of all that is good and that even our very lives are his. It makes us want to honor him and to know him aright. Our confession of faith, by the way, in a little pastoral paragraph, points out that as we read in the Bible, uh, various places, you can check in scripture references later, uh, that by this doctrine, we are called to be assured of our eternal election. Um, that what God starts, he finishes. This, that this doctrine should be to the praise, reverence, and admiration of God and give us humility and diligence and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So I'll save that all that for another sermon simply to point out it's a very practical doctrine in the Bible. Nevertheless, two objections must immediately spring to mind. First, Where is the justice of God in all this? And second, what about human freedom? Is God really going to make us this way and then condemn us? I mean, is God just making people for the fires of hell? Is this not the kind of objection that arises in your mind when you read something like this? If God is choosing some people and therefore not others, He is appointing some to eternal life and appointing some to stumble at this stumbling block. Is there not some injustice with God? Well, here's the comment of Charles Hodge. 
professor at Princeton whose reform credentials are impeccable. It's not the doctrine of the Bible that God first makes men wicked and then punishes them for their wickedness. The scriptures only assert what we see and know to be true. God permits men in the exercise of their own free agency to sin and then punishes them for their sins in proportion to their guilt. There is no unrighteousness with God. He doesn't make men sin. He doesn't tempt men to sin. He doesn't uh, uh, receive any blame for creating a race of creatures where some will sin and sin themselves right to their destruction. The Bible always lays the responsibility for this sin and for the condemnation that must result, not on God, but on man himself. As a matter of fact, Romans says earlier, they know that those who do these things are deserving of death. That is to say, choosing death rather than life. Sin coming from the creature, not from the creator, there is no injustice with God. Furthermore, there will not be a single person in hell who can say, I'm only here because you didn't elect me. Every sinner will be here because I say, I hate you. And I am here because of my sin and guilt. And I have reaped what I sowed. And I have received only the justice for what I chose to do from a righteous judge, knowing full well that these things are deserving of death. Well, uh, one more uh, celebrity endorsement, if I can give that to you. The time is getting on here. Uh, these things came up again in the 17th uh, century. There was an international interdenominational synod called to meet in the Netherlands at the city of Dort. It was an international interdenominational. That is to say, they said, can we have a representative from the Church of England, a representative, a representatives, plural, from, from England, from, from Ireland, uh, from other countries in, in Europe. They, they came together, met in synod, uh, and they produced a statement of these matters called the Canons of Dort, and trying to state this answer for you properly without um, explaining the mystery, here it goes. God, out of his sovereign, most just, and irreprehensible, unchanging good pleasure, has decreed to leave some men in the common misery into which they have willingly plunged themselves and not to bestow upon them saving faith and the grace of conversion, but permitting them in his just judgment to follow their own ways, at last for the declaration of his justice, to condemn and punish them forever, not only on account of their unbelief, but also for all their other sins. And this decree of reprobation, which by no means make God the author of sin, the very thought of which is blasphemy, but declares him to be an awful, that is an awesome, irreprehensible, righteous judge, and the avenger thereof. Uh, heading one. Heading two. The promise of the gospel is that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons promiscuously, without distinction, to whom God, out of his good pleasure, sends the gospel. As many as truly believe and are delivered and saved from sin and destruction through the death of Christ are indebted for this benefit solely to the grace of God, given them in Christ from everlasting and to no merit of their own. 
For this was the sovereign counsel and most gracious purpose of God the Father, that the life-giving and saving effectiveness of his most precious Son should extend to all the elect, for giving them alone the gift of justifying faith and thereby to bring them infallibly to salvation. Uh, I don't know if you got all that, but uh, that is the original preeminent statement of the Calvinistic doctrine, still the reform of all, still the doctrine of all the reformed churches, uh, save the Presbyterian uh, churches and of uh, the Reformed Church of England. They, that that is the still the statement today. Well, all right, a great mystery, but what does it imply? What does it not imply? Does this mean that it doesn't matter whether we evangelize or not? Uh, Does this kill evangelistic zeal, as so often people accuse us? (laughs) Paul, for his part, is teaching these things. He says, you know, I, I wish I could be accursed. I could wish I myself accursed from Christ if only my brethren would be saved. My heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they may be saved. He says elsewhere in the next chapter, I magnify my ministry. I work so hard with the Gentiles, just hoping I could provoke some of my own countrymen to be saved. And how are they going to hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? You you, you cannot read this passage and, and think that this in any way kills evangelistic zeal. This, neither does this relieve people of their guilt or their choice in the matter. God's, God's hardening does not mean that uh, God put sin in Pharaoh's heart or even tempted him to sin. He doesn't cause anyone to sin. And Pharaoh is responsible for his own sin, James 1.13. God gave him over. We read that in the first chapter of Romans. Those who weren't thankful, who wanted God out of their minds, God gave them over to a debased mind. They wanted God out of their lives, God gave them over to the lives that they wanted. Uh, and still God was patient with them. Um, and and uh, so it is here in chapter 10. Israel uh, did not seek it by faith, but by works, and have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And so this does not in any way relieve people of their guilt or the responsibility of their choice. Israel's fault. It doesn't hinder anyone who wants to be saved. If anyone confesses with their mouths, anyone believes in their hearts, you'll be saved. There's no distinction. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Neither does this mean that, that uh, God doesn't want some wicked people to turn and be saved. No, he says, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Uh, do not think that this kills evangelistic zeal or it relieves people of guilt and choice and makes them robots or hinders anyone who wants to be saved or that God doesn't desire people to turn to him to be saved in his moral will. No, all these things are taught in our passage. Well, what does it mean? Well, it helps those who preach the gospel. It helps those who preach the gospel. The Lord appeared to Paul at one discouraged point and says, don't be afraid. You go on speaking and don't be silent. I'm with you. No one's going to attack you or harm you. And I have many people in this city. Many people. You keep speaking, Paul. I mean, they don't know it yet, but they assuredly will come to Christ, uh, bringing together God's sovereignty and human responsibility to tell people there's a Savior. If God has redeemed uh, 
men, uh, sorry, if Christ has redeemed men for God by his blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, the question is only when, not if. It gives great boldness and encouragement to pioneer missionaries to know these doctrines. How does it help those who hear the gospel? Well, with the apostle, we are able to, um, uh, uh, sorry, um, re- recognize, I meant to say, salvation is of the Lord, and uh, therefore, uh, we, are, we, we have our place. Let me, let me see if I could read a quote by J.I. Packer that's going to make this more clear. The, the new gospel that puts it all in man's hand, takes it all away from God, it's all in man's hand. He says, that, that gospel denies our dependence on God when it comes to such vital decisions and takes us out of God's hand and tells us that we are, after all, that's what sin taught us to be, masters of our fate, the captain of our souls, and it undermines the very foundation of man's relationship with his maker. And it can hardly be wondered, he says, that the converts of this new gospel are so irreverent and irreligious because that's the natural tendency of this teaching. It fails to make men God-centered in their thoughts and God-fearing in their hearts because that's not primarily what it's designed to do. The, The new gospel that puts it all in man's hand, it makes man the ruler and the master. The old gospel, he says, Paul's gospel, is a summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord upon whom man utterly depends for all good. The old gospel announces that Christ has pitied them, though pity was the last thing they deserved. It never loses sight of God's majesty and the sovereign power of our Christ. The old gospel labors to overthrow all self-confidence and convince sinners that their salvation is altogether out of their hands and to shut them up to a self-sparing dependence on the glorious grace of a sovereign Savior, not only for their righteousness, but for their faith too. So that, as Dr. K used to say, you need to apply to God for your salvation. On bended knee, have mercy upon me, O God, a sinner. That's your only plea. You are not the master of your fate and the captain of your destiny. You are a suppliant, a beggar with nothing, coming to the king who has everything, begging for your life. An answer, a prayer that he is pleased to answer. So, it helps those who preach the gospel to have confidence. It helps those who hear the gospel, even if they don't believe, to know that they don't have all the keys in their hand, that they, if they want to be saved, need humbly to apply to God. And third, it helps us who believe the gospel to to have a more personal, loving, worshipful relationship as we realize we love him because he first loved us. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Um, God has chosen us in love, Christ has redeemed us in love, and the Spirit has drawn us in love and bears that fruit of love. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So when we realize that salvation ultimately is of the Lord and that we have made this choice within this broader framework of God's election, we, we, we understand God's love and salvation in a new way. We, we, we know a, a, an unconditional kind of love before the boys did anything good or bad. We know full well who we are and what we have done, and we are able then to receive that love and to love others in the same way. Beloved, if God so loved us, 
we ought to love one another. Well, I've taken you through some, some deep waters. Thank you for going with me, and I hope that I've answered some questions, even if I've raised others in your mind. Let's go to the Lord, though, as the one who can seal these things to our hearts. Our Father in heaven, you taught us that when we were strangers wandering from the fold of God, that you sent your Son as the shepherd to the lost sheep to seek us and to find us. For all we like sheep had gone astray. Everyone turned to his own way. But you have sought us out and you have laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And now we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls, not because of our superior wisdom or virtue or even faith. We confess that from first to last, salvation is of the Lord, and we praise our wonderful and glorious Savior. To know you is to love you. And may we be all the more lost in wonder, love, and praise, not even understanding how these things have come to us, but that they have come from your gracious hand. Flood our lives with his confidence in sovereign grace that it may be all the more a glorious thing for us to be.